morning, everyone. Go ahead and take a seat. It's good to see you today. Before I get into the message today, I want to just briefly mention the baptism we have coming up in a couple of weeks. Jesus told his followers to go public with their decision to follow him and to be baptized. Private decisions are pretty easily changed because, well, nobody knows that we've made those decisions. That's why whenever we're ready to mark a serious commitment, we do so publicly, and that's what baptism is. So if you're interested in getting baptized, you can uh, mark the appropriate box on the back of your connection card. Make sure we've got your contact information on the front, and then we'll get in touch with you with some more details about getting baptized in a couple of weeks. Now, you can go ahead and take out the message insert uh, out of your program if you haven't done so already. That'll help you follow along in this morning's message. We're looking at the five common ways we tend to get stuck in life. Now, the reason we get stuck is usually not because of the size of the challenge that's out there. It's usually the size of the challenge that's, that's in here. It's on the inside. Now, the outside challenges, of course, are very real, and they can be pretty massive. But it's what we think in our heads and what we feel in our hearts that tends to either help us move forward in the face of the challenges that we're facing or keep us stuck. So in this series, we're looking at the inside challenges that shape how we handle whatever is out there. In particular, we're looking at the five common thoughts that get us stuck and then tend to keep us stuck. Here they are. It's too hard. It's not fair. It's not what I want. I'm too tired. I'm the only one. Today, we're going to look at the second one. It's not fair. If you take a two-year-old playing with a toy and you put another two-year-old next to that first two-year-old, everybody knows what's going to happen next, right? The new arrival is going to reach out for the toy that the first one is already playing with, and the first one is going to begin to scream injustice. Now, no one has explained justice and what that all means to this first two-year-old. They just know. We all just instinctively know when something's not fair. Now, fairness, turns out, isn't just a childish phase that we outgrow. It actually is the beginning of a lifelong mission. Currently, I'm on a $93 fairness mission. Back in January, I switched internet providers, and uh, I made the mistake before of not timing it well. This time, I timed it perfectly. But I still got a bill for the next month for $93 from the old internet provider. So about this time, I think I've added up. I've spent well over two hours on the phone trying to get this $93 matter resolved. And every time I talk to them, they assure me that this never should have happened and that they will remove the charge. But the day before Easter, I got a notice in the mail from a collection agency that if I didn't pay the $93, that they were going to report me to the credit agencies. Now, that made me mad because, why? That's just not fair. It's not right. Now, if I was smart and or if I wanted to save time, I would have just paid the $93 probably two months ago when I realized this is just going to take forever to resolve. But, you know, I just can't write that check because it's not about the money. $93 is no big deal. It's about justice. It's just not right. I, I don't owe $93. And, you know, there's a lot that's wrong in this world that I can't fix. There's actually a number of things in my own life that are wrong that I really can't make right. But $93, that seems within reach. Seems like maybe I can just make this one thing right. And so that's been my mission for the last few months. Now, my frustration, of course, is with the company that is threatening to damage my credit. But the fairness buck, whatever it is, it ultimately stops with the one who's in charge. 
And so the one I'm really struggling with is God. And that can be a very deep ditch to get stuck in. Why does God allow this world to be so unfair? If we don't have a good answer to that, we're going to spend much of our life stuck in this ditch. So to get an answer to this question, we're going to look at two places in the Bible. We're going to look at the story of Joseph, and we're going to look at the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the stories in the Old Testament and the prophecy together in the Old Testament make up most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. It's in the stories that we read in the Old Testament that we really get to see how God interacts with this world and what's really important to him. It's in the prophecies that we get a chance to hear additional commentary on the themes that have emerged out of the stories. It's kind of like watching sports. You know, you can turn the sound down and just watch the game. You can see what's going on. You can notice when the teams score. You can keep track of what the score is, and you can tell who wins. But usually we watch sports with the volume turned up so we can hear the commentary because it's the commentary that helps us understand more than what we can just see with our eyes. And that's the role that prophecy has in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. We can read the stories and we can learn a lot, but it's as the themes that emerge in these stories are commented on by the prophets in the Old Testament that we really get to see a lot more of both what we think and what God thinks about these matters. So Joseph is one of the great stories of injustice in the Bible. And Jeremiah is one of the great commentators on the theme of injustice. So first, let's look at the story. At an early age, God told Joseph that he was going to be a great leader. Joseph made the big mistake of telling his older brothers that one day he was going to be the boss of them. Not a smart move. So they sold him in slavery to Egypt. Not fair. I mean, we can understand maybe a head noogie by the older brothers, but I mean, selling him into slavery, that's a bit of an overreaction. Very unjust. But Joseph makes the best of this unfair situation, and he works diligently for his new owner. His name is Potiphar. Now, in time, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and tries to seduce him. Joseph does what is right and rejects her advances. So, in turn, she accuses him of rape, and has him thrown unjustly into jail. Not fair. Once again, Joseph decides to make the best of an unfair situation, and he works diligently for the jailer. And it's in the jail that he meets Pharaoh's butler, who is also wrongly imprisoned. And Joseph helps this butler interpret a dream that he has that leads to the butler's release from prison and entry back into Pharaoh's court. And the butler promises upon his release that he is going to bring this unjust matter of Joseph's imprisonment before Pharaoh. Well, nothing happens. In fact, for two long years, Joseph just continues to remain in prison and hears nothing. Seems as if the butler has completely reneged on his promise. Not fair. So why does God allow life to be so unfair? Well, let's go to Jeremiah for the commentary. Jeremiah doesn't comment specifically on the story of Joseph. He comments more generally on the theme of injustice. And Jeremiah asked and got two answers to the fairness question. So here's answer number one. This is answer number one. This life is about training, not competing. This life is about training, not competing. That's the first answer that God gives Jeremiah. So let's look 
now a little more in depth at that, and let's begin by looking at Jeremiah's fairness question. Here's how Jeremiah phrases the question slash accusation. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, here's what we read. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the, why do all of the faithless live at ease? And he goes on to list some more evidence in this case. And then in verse 4, he concludes with this. Moreover, moreover, the people are saying, he, being God, will not see what happens to us. So let me summarize what Jeremiah is asking slash accusing God of in this passage. He begins by saying, God, I, I really don't have any problem. I have no complaint about what you say is right and what you say is wrong. You are always right. You're always righteous. You always nail the truth. So whenever I bring a case before you, a, a dispute, a problem, you're always right. You always nail exactly what the truth is on this matter, what's right and what's wrong about this. So I don't have a problem with what you say is right and wrong. The problem that I have is when it comes to the sentencing phase. Yet I would speak with you about your injustice. Or justice, as he says, but really it's injustice. He says, here's what I observe, God. Someone is wicked, and they strike it rich. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You know, if, if the verdict is guilty, that's what the word wicked means. They, they really are guilty of sin. So then, God, why do you sentence them with prosperity? That makes no sense. And then someone refuses to trust you. They are faithless. They, they don't factor you at all into their life decisions. And yet, they live a comfortable life. So you correctly, God, identify someone as having no faith in you. They're faithless. But then, their sentence is a life of ease. Why, God? I mean, no court could ever survive operating like that. I mean, just imagine someone is convicted rightly of murder, and the sentence is they get a million-dollar reward. Well, that's going to mess justice up completely. That's not going to deter murder. It's going to incentivize it. So in verse 4, that's why he goes on to say, God, do you see what's happening? Here's what I see. People are beginning to conclude that you can't see them. Because they defy you and nothing bad happens. They obey you and nothing good happens. So they're saying, you know, he's not going to see what happens to us. Either God can't see, or having seen, he doesn't really care about these things. So, you know what? We can do whatever we want. What Jeremiah is saying is, God, if you could just make the benefits more directly connect to the consequences, more obvious things would happen, and things would turn around. If, if every time someone did something wrong, there were real consequences to it, and if every time they did something right, there were good consequences, I think, God, you'd see a turnaround in things. Is really what Jeremiah is saying. And this isn't just true back then. This is true now. I mean, why do more people in Huntington Beach not take God seriously? It's because there's no obvious reason to. You know, they do something good and not, not necessarily good things happen. They do something bad and nothing happens. So they've come to the conclusion, you know, God really isn't a factor. You know, if all of the wealthy people in America were Christians, oh, I mean all of them, people would begin to say, hey, just wait a minute here. They'd begin to make the connection. 
And I just predict we would see more people decide to follow Jesus. If they could make the connection, you know, the only way to get rich is you decide to follow Jesus. I don't know how that works, but that seems to be the, the, the key common denominator. But that's not the way it is. Yes, there are followers of Christ who are very wealthy, but by no means are they in the majority. The majority of really wealthy people, they really don't take God seriously at all. What about if on the other side, if every single person who defied God in Huntington Beach last week, the moment they defied him, something horrible happened to them? I mean, right away. Like, they did the wrong thing, and then, bam, some bad thing happened for everyone. Well, again, eventually, people would begin to make the connection. And I would predict that attendance would go up here if the consequences were linked to the actions. So this is the accusation that Jeremiah is making. And when you read it, it's like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I think he has a point. So now are you ready for God's answer to Jeremiah's question about why life is so unfair? Here it is. Next verse, Jeremiah 12, 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Huh? Do you see the link? I mean, you read through that and you go, wait, what did I? Let me go back and read what the question was because I don't see the connection with the answer. That just doesn't sound like an answer to the question. I mean, what does a foot race have to do with injustice? What is God talking about here? Well, I think God is making two very important points that I stated earlier in answer number one. The first part of that answer is the point that God is making here, and that is that life is not a competition. We think it is, but it's not. He says to Jeremiah, how can you compete with horses? What's the answer to that question? You can't. I don't care how great of a runner you are, you're not beating a horse. A mule maybe, not a horse. So what he's saying is if you make this life a competition, you might as well line up against the horses in yesterday's Kentucky Derby. That's, you're not going to succeed. You can't outrun them. It's absurd. You can't win that race no matter how hard you try. The word competition has two parts to it. The prefix com, com is Latin for together. The root of the word comes from a Latin word, pateri, which means to agree. And this is what competition is. People come together and they agree. What do they agree about? The rules. That's the basis of competition. In order for competition to occur, there needs to be an agreement on the rules under which winners and losers are determined. That's why competitions have referees. Without fairness, without a fair implementation of the rules, there would be no agreement on who wins and on who loses. Now, it's interesting. We actually saw this for the first time ever in the Kentucky Derby. The horse that crossed first was disqualified. Looked like the horse won, but because of a violation of the rules... The horse didn't win. Another horse won. The one that crossed second won. And this is why we demand fairness in this life. Because we look out and we think in competitive terms, and therefore we automatically think that this life should be fair. 
So we see someone doing better than us, and we assume what? They're winning. They're doing better than us. They're ahead of us. They're winning. And therefore, we're what? Compared to them, we're losing. So we put in the effort to do better, to pull ahead. But then maybe we get sick. That's not fair. How can we compete if we're sick? Or maybe the economy goes down and we lose our job. Well, that's not fair. Or we see them cheat and they actually pull ahead because they've just cheated. Not fair. And we wait for the whistle to blow and the cheater to be ejected from the competition and it just doesn't happen. They actually pull further ahead because they're cheating. Not fair. I talked with a guy years ago who was telling me his life story. And he said basically when he was 13, he started dabbling in drugs. And he got addicted pretty early on. And basically he said, I was addicted on drugs. I went in and out of rehab you know, for a while. But for the most part, I was addicted from age 13 to age 45. He said, and then I decided to follow Jesus Christ. I committed my life to him, and he saved me. He did what rehab could never do. He freed me from that. I mean, it took a while, but I'm, I'm, I've been free for a few decades now. It was a great story. And so I asked him, I said, so, so what do you do for work now? And he said, well, honestly, nothing. I said, really? What do you mean nothing? He said, well, my family has a lot of real estate. And the checks, these were his words, the checks just come in the mail. And I thought, huh, I am really happy for you. I had a really hard time being happy for him. Why? Because you know what was ringing in my head? That's not fair. I was looking around for the referee to say, yeah, that's not fair. I mean, I didn't do drugs. I have to work for every dollar. He does drugs, and really, checks just show up in the mail. All he has to do is get up off the couch, go to the mailbox, open the check, deposit it, and spend it. That's not right. It made me wonder, you know, are, are there no rules? And that's what fairness does. We, we begin to wonder, are there no rules? Yes, there are rules. God has established the rules by which reality runs. But here's the challenge. God's rules, his moral rules, are not enforced immediately. And the reason is because, truth be told, we'd all lose. If the whistle was blown on every infraction, we'd all be kicked out. And so God is merciful and patient. But what that means is life, then, is unfair. So if life isn't a competition, that's the way we view it. But if that's wrong, then what is this life about? That's the second point that God's making in this one verse answer. Turns out this life is not about competition, but this life is about training. It's about training for the next life. Again, God says, if you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? What he's saying is, Jeremiah... First, you can't compete with horses. But secondly, it's, you think it's hard now? It's going to get even harder. It's been foot race hard. In a little bit, it's going to be horse race pace 
it's going to get harder. And if you stumble in safe country, how are you managing the thickets by the Jordan? Jeremiah, if you're getting tripped up by the circumstances that you're facing now, if you're getting stuck by what's happening to you now, I, you just have to know the path that I have for you in the future is going to take you out of the safe country and into the, the thick brush that runs along the Jordan River. Now, if you've seen that, it is not just grasses. It is thickets that you, you can't push yourself through. You've got to hack your way through foot by foot. What are you saying? Jeremiah, you're going to have more obstacles in life. You're going to look back on this time in life and think, wow, that was the safe country. <laughs> now it's like I, I'm having a hard time making any progress. Why would God do this? It's because God is not after making this life fair. All you have to do is observe life to realize that. What he is after is developing our faith. We talked about this last week. You know, we tend to think that this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, then something's really wrong. Because this life is pretty messed up a lot of times. But God knows that this life is the very, very brief and the very, very important beginning to the next life, to eternity. And he knows that what we do in this life lays the foundation and sets the orientation and the trajectory of forever for us. And that means that the decisions that we make in this life about God and the way we live this life in reference to that makes all the difference forever. So this life is a training opportunity then for us to get clear on some things and to grow in our faith and to make the investments that will echo for all of eternity. So how do you grow faith? Well, it's the same way you grow the stamina of runners, through training. All training has levels. You know, if you're going to run a marathon, you don't just get off your couch and run a marathon. You get off your couch and walk around the block. And then you walk around two blocks, and then you walk around three blocks, and then you jog around three blocks. And then you run a mile, and then you run two, and then you run five, and then you run 11. And you, you keep increasing the strain. That's what training is. This is why you walk into 24-hour fitness and you see everybody doing different things and you don't think, hey, 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 not fair. Everybody should be doing the same thing. No, no, no. You realize this is a training facility. That's why everybody's doing different things. Because people, first of all, are at all different levels of fitness. And secondly, they are training for different purposes. I know you look at some people at these fitness places and you think, I have no idea what you're training for. But people that are seriously training, they, they've got a different goal. Some are really working on cardio because they've, they've got a race. Some are really working on strength for different reasons. So their training regimen differs. And that's the way this life is. This life is all about training. So if I have to work hard to pay the bills and the guy next to me who's wasted 30 years of his life has checks just appear in the mail, it's not because he deserves it and I don't. It's because, for me, this is part of my training plan. God intended that I just would have to work hard my whole life. And he has a different training plan for him. You know, if you knew this person, you would know that there's some parts of this person's life that are way harder than my life. 
Not the money part, but other parts. We tend to think of strain as an unfair thing, especially when we see someone else getting it easier in that area. But God sees it as a way to grow my faith. I don't always know why, because he's the trainer. He's the master trainer. He knows what I need. So what he's saying to Jeremiah and to us is you can just expect difficulties in the future, not fairness. If you want to dial in your expectations, it's going to be tough. And this has been my experience. I think, you know what? We finally get past this stage in life. Life is going to be so much easier. We we get out of the kids not sleeping stage. Oh, it's going to be great. And then we're in the kids going to school stage. So once we get past that, oh, that'll be great. And then we're in the kids' or teenager stage. And if we can just get them out of the house and off to college, that'll be great. That is great. But life just gets harder and harder and harder. And the reason is because it's not about fairness. It's about getting ready for forever, for eternity. God's taking us to the next level of faith. This is what was going on with Joseph. I mean, when Joseph was 17... God told him he would be a great leader. But at 17, he was in no way ready to be that great leader. In fact, the way he handled the news and what he told his brothers is evidence of the fact that he's pretty clueless. If you have any sense at all, you would know, I probably shouldn't brag to my brothers about the fact that I'm going to be the boss of them. That's probably not a good move. But he was 17. He didn't have the sense. He was not ready to lead. So God put Joseph into his 13-year executive training program. Slavery, false accusations, false imprisonment. No one is signing up for that training program. But that was God's training program. And on the surface, it looked like God was just messing with him. But in reality, God was training him to get to the point where he could literally save the lives of millions of people. You see, because what was coming was a massive famine in the whole region, Egypt and beyond. No one knew that. God did, but no one else did. And because of that coming famine that was going to last for seven years, some really tough decisions were going to need to be made in advance of that famine. And some really tough decisions about how to distribute the food that they had prepared for was going to have to be made during that famine. And Joseph was going to be that guy. And so with all those tough decisions, God had to get Joseph ready for that. Now, in the moment, from Joseph's perspective, it had to look like life was unfair. But at the end, near the end of the story, Joseph could look back on his life and say, ah, now I see. I didn't see it in the moment, but I look back, I see it. He could see the hand of God doing good. This is why he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20, to his brothers who he forgave. He says, you intended to harm me, and they really did. The good thing is what God intends always wins whatever people intend. But God intended it for good. Didn't look like it for a long time, but it was. To accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So answer number one is this life is about training. It's not about competing. So we got to work on stop looking in comparison to everyone else, trying to compete with them. That's not the point. Answer number two is this. This life is about serving. It's not about getting. It's about serving, not getting. This is a really hard one for us to accept. 
So listen to Jeremiah's second fairness question. It's found just a few chapters later in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. Here's what he says. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. So why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Let me summarize this question slash accusation. It says, God, you're the one that tapped me to be your prophet. You asked me to be your prophet. And I didn't just coldly deliver your words. No, the first thing I did is I ate them. Not literally, but I ingested them. and I treated them like fine steak. I, I put them into my life. I ingested them into my life. With joy, I did this. And it changed me. It transformed me. And I really worked on doing your words, not just speaking them, but doing them. And that's why I never joined in with those who were doing wrong. I never joined in with the revelry, the people that were having a party defying you. What this meant over and over again is I was by myself. I I just had to sit alone because I was committed to do these words. I was committed to do what is right. So the question I have, God, is why now is life so painful for me? And if you read the story of Jeremiah, that's a tough life. And he's saying, why am I in so much pain? I did the right thing. I obeyed your words. I didn't join people in having a party doing the wrong thing. I I did the right thing, so why am I in pain? I did what you wanted in exchange. Now I have a wound that it seems to me like it's never going to heal. Just about the time where it's scabbing over and I think, okay, things are getting better, then something else happens and it rips the wound right off and more pain. So he says, God, are you like one of those desert riverbeds? You've seen them if you've driven to Phoenix, across the Mojave. You know, water's been there, you can tell. But you go down to the edge of them, you're going to be disappointed if you're looking for water. He's saying, you know, God, I've heard of people being refreshed by you, but I go to the edge in my relationship with you, and I look in there, and I don't see anything. Are you... uh, a deceptive brook? Are you a spring that fails? Jeremiah's thought and suggestion is, God, I think you would have better results if the pay was better. If following you meant more pleasure and less pain, I think people would follow you more. I mean, people do whatever makes them feel better. And to be honest, God, you don't feel that good. I do the right thing, and my life is pretty painful struggle. Again, like the other question, don't you resonate with this? If you've taken time to really do God's word, you've got to have this question, how, how come this person has such a, seems like a, such a happier life? And I'm struggling. So listen to God's response. Verse 19, the very next verse, Jeremiah 15. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Huh? Again, wait, how is this an answer to the question? What kind of answer is this? I mean, what if when I called my previous internet provider, they had responded like this? 
What if they had said, you know, I understand, I see the record here that you're very dissatisfied with our service. So here's our offer. It's just a one-time only, today-only offer, and this is it. If you repent of your bad attitude towards us and change your mind, we will consider, we'll just consider giving you the privilege of being our customer once again. <laughs> oh, no, uh-uh, that's not how it works, right? That's not how you're supposed to treat customers if you want to keep them. And this is God's point to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you got it backwards. You are not the customer. It's not about you. And that's really what's behind the it's not fair accusation. It's the assumption that we are the customer. We are God's customer. The accusation then is that God needs to improve his level of service here. And God's answer to that accusation is, Jeremiah, you, you don't understand. You've got it all backwards. You're not the customer. Let me tell you, the highest position that you can ever aspire to is to be my servant. So here's the deal. If you get your heart right and you get back on track, I'll give you that great privilege. You can continue to serve me. You can continue to speak for me because that's the greatest privilege in life that any human can ever have. Customers, though, they don't serve. They are served. So we've got it backwards. The privilege, the greatest privilege in life is to serve. But we've become convinced, especially in our customer-oriented society, that God is supposed to serve us. He does love us, but that doesn't mean he serves us. God knows that that approach to life is a, is a lie. It's a lie that's going to cloud our ability to see our real purpose in life and squander our life. I mean, we were uniquely created by God to partner with what he is doing in this world. That is the greatest privilege we will ever have. But as long as we are getting the life that we have ordered, the chances of us seeing this fact is pretty much zero. So God often allows us to get a life different than the one we've ordered. To kind of shock us out of our customer mentality. And to open our eyes to the fact that this life is a once, literally once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve Him. And that's the decision we all have to make. And we don't just make it once. We make it every day, actually, throughout the day. That's the decision we all have to make in the moment is, what kind of life do I want to live today? What do I want this life to be about? Me, the customer, or me, the servant of God? What's it going to be? You know, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they told their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. I mean, obviously, they didn't want to tell their father, hey, he made us mad, so we sold him into slavery. So they took his robe. They put the blood of a goat on it and said, we found this, so I think a wild animal must have killed him. That's what they told Joseph's father. Now, the name of Joseph's father is Jacob. So I know we've got three names here, and they all start with J, so let me just clarify. Jeremiah is the prophet. Joseph is the son who was sold into slavery, who eventually became number two in Egypt. Jacob is his father, Joseph's father. 
And as you'd expect, any father with the news of the death of their child, he was wounded to the core of his being. I mean, I've never experienced this, and may I never, but from those who have, and I can see nothing hurts more and feels more wrong than the death of your child. So here's Jacob's response. Genesis 37, 35. He's just been told that his son Joseph has been killed. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. In mourning, I will get, go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Now, I understand that response. But here's the thing is, he didn't just grieve for a day or a week or a year. He did what he said here. Jacob spends the next 14 years in depression. And then, about year 14, he learns that it was all a lie. His son is not dead. And not only that, in fact, he's number two in Egypt. And not only that, he is the one that's going to save not only them, but millions of people from starvation. Can you imagine better news? Can you imagine the joy that now flooded the darkness of his heart? But here's the problem. There was absolutely nothing he could do to get back those 14 years. He'd already spent them. Mourning. And this is the way life is for all of us. Whether we have a loss of that size or smaller losses, it always comes to us a day at a time. And there's always pain, and there's always injustice in it, and we can't ever see the entire plan of God. And we can't see how this loss or how this pain or how this injustice is going to fit into anything good. All we can see is the pain. And the unfair thing is sitting there on our plate. And we have to decide, what are we going to do today? What kind of life am I going to lead today? Do I want to live the customer life demanding better service? Or do I want to take the gift of this day and this hour and turn this time into service to God? That's the choice we all face. Now, in my experience, it takes a long time to see any good come out of injustice. Actually, in my experience, it's been a pretty similar time frame that it was for Joseph. It took Joseph 13 years before he could see why this slavery and why this imprisonment and why all of these injustices. For me, it's usually been somewhere between 10 to 15 years. You know, for 10 years or more, I'm just scratching my head thinking, I, I don't know why that happened. And then sometime between 10 to 15 years, starts as a little pin of light, and I begin to see, oh, I can see why that needed to happen for this to happen and this to happen, and now this good thing is happening all because of that. But for 10, 15 years, I couldn't see it. All I could see was the wrong, the injustice. And that's the way it is for most of us. Some of it, honestly, we don't ever see. We won't see the good until we see it from the perspective of heaven. But here's the challenge we all have with whatever injustice is on our plate. If I spend today lost in anger and sadness, if I give this day totally to anger and sadness over what's on my plate, I've just wasted the day. 
and I can't get that day back. Now, in, for me, in most cases, my anger and my sadness has been pretty much like Jacob's. It was a waste of my time. Now, later, I saw the good that God was doing, and I had wished that I hadn't spent so much time angry at God or pouting over how badly I was treated. A lot of people get stuck in this ditch. They're going along, they're following God, they're taking Him seriously, and then something really hard happens, something really unfair happens, and they get mad at God, and they stay mad for decades. Sometimes they never get out of the ditch. And they waste the gift of the time God has given them. So the unfair thing is on your plate right now. It's on my plate right now. How are we going to respond to it? That answer shapes the kind of life you live and therefore the kind of eternity that you experience. Lots at stake. It's okay to grieve. It's okay even to be angry. But don't let the grief, don't let the anger throw you into the ditch and keep you stuck there. Get up onto your feet. Walk out of your front door. And day after day after day, keep asking the question, what can I do as a servant of God to fulfill my purpose with this day? That's how you get out of the ditch. So I've got a couple of next steps for you to consider as we wrap up. First is, I would encourage you to read the entire story of Joseph. I've just hit some highlight themes. Um, on the inside of the listening guide are the homework questions for those of you that are in growth groups this week. But on the bottom of the, the inside page are the chapters in Genesis that contain the story of Joseph. So I'd encourage you to read that this week. Then also, I would encourage you to memorize Genesis 50, verse 20. Memorizing these verses really helps us when we find ourselves stuck. We've mentioned that both the kids and the youth are doing the, the same material that we're going through, these same questions in some different formats, but the same topic. And for the kids that are in uh, grade school, we have a parent cue. It's a sheet of paper that gives you some of the uh, topics or the way they've developed a topic so that you can talk to your kids about that. And in this week's parent cue, there's a section about how to memorize the verses of family. So if you've got kids that age, just go ahead and pick up that parent cue to make sure that you've, you've got that so that you can maybe try memorizing this verse um, as a family this week. So let me close by reading this verse again. This is Joseph's summary of all of the injustice he faced. Here's what he says, Genesis 50, verse 20, to his brothers. You intended to harm me. They really did. But God intended. What God intends always wins over what other people intend. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let's pray. Father, um, there's got to be a number of hard things represented on all of our plates here. Things that have been said or done to us that are just not right. I pray that you'd help us to not allow ourselves to get stuck in anger or sadness over those things but to answer the critical question of what do I do now to serve you? How can I be a part? And Father, give us patience to wait, to see the good that you intend even in this harm. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste a day. 
We need your help with this, and we ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.